HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. kind of an it's almost arid except it has a sort of neat seasonal situation in which the summers are literally a drought every summer and then it's really rainy in the winter like the northwest like washington which is actually where i came here via i grew up in iowa and uh then farmed in washington state and uh, finished a degree in agroecology there and um through that degree i became acquainted with john jevons who was the founder of the organization that I work for now. And um, and so I made that connection through through the school that I was at, at the Evergreen State College, and then um, came here to work. And to my surprise, I found um, all that I had hoped for and more in the community here. So the site that I work on is part of a community that has a really fascinating history. Um, it's called the Golden Rule community and it's been on this property since the 60s and it's huge it's um 5,000 acres and in fact used to be much more than that and so it's an intentional community that like many intentional communities is significantly smaller than um than say 25 or 30 years ago but it's a group of people that live on the land and 
um, live communally and share everything in common, including their finances, and do communal meals, et cetera, et cetera. And the nonprofit that I work for has a relationship with them. Um, and so they donate the land and the housing that we use to train our interns. And in turn, we produce food for the community. So it's a neat symbiotic relationship in that way. Wow. So I didn't even know about that, that you're actually bartering for rent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about John Jevons' methodology and how you're... Um, how you're part of this global network of people working on low-input agriculture. Um, yeah, yeah, great. So John Jevons, um, founder of Ecology Action, wrote a book that many people are familiar with called How to Grow More Vegetables on Less Land Than You Ever Thought Possible, the wordy title. <laughs> um, and his major focus when he started this work 42 years ago was asking the question, how much land does does one human need to survive? And so he started to doing um, basically small-scale field research to start to answer this question. And he's totally a numbers guy, so he's like an economist that got lost in a field um, and ended up developing something really cool. So, um, so what he did was develop this method that is basically a uh, it really compiles the concepts of a long history of small-scale, hand-powered agriculture from, you know, everywhere from from China to, to Mayan history. Um, and he's, he put sort of that history together in these simplified eight concepts. And so what those concepts aim to do is, um, with the smallest amount of land possible, grow all of the needs of a human diet. Um, and in addition to that, do so while maintaining the fertility of the soil with zero inputs. And so um, in that sense, the context is really a long history in terms of like who we're working with and um, the community that we're a part of. But additionally, since John developed these principles and the method, um, his work has been really applicable in developing countries for subsistence farmers as it is dedicated to growing all of your caloric needs, really being able to sustain yourself off your own land. And so our network um, is really strong globally, and we have we have sites all over the world that some of our really big ones or our stronger connections are in Mexico. We, um, we have several long-term teachers that have been teaching this method for a long time, and we have a really strong site in Kenya, too. And those sort of hotspots are developing in Sri Lanka and Senegal. Also, right now, we have some great work in Ecuador and Nicaragua as well. So, all over. <laughs> so, all of these, all of these sites are part of this vast network, the big cultural project of increasing community self-reliance and food sovereignty and human nutrition, um, and really understanding that at the at the at the individual level, at the at the microeconomy level. I wonder if we could go even more micro and talk about the life of the soil and what kind of soil ecology action is happening um, under your care and in that garden that you're spending so much time bended over in. <laughs> yeah, great. That's my favorite subject. <laughs> um, yeah, so... 
So I think, you know, one thing I often say is that in the sense that we're trying to maximize yield on a small amount of space, our objective isn't that different than, say, a, a chemical agriculturalist. Um, but what makes us different is our dedication to maintaining soil health. And so the way that we emphasize that is how do we grow soil? How do we grow soil health? What does soil health even mean? And so um, really a lot of that boils down to organic matter. Um, organic matter creates structure in the soil. It regulates nutrient release. It holds on to water. It prevents erosion because of that structural addition. Um, and so there's all of these, you know, and that's just sort of scratching the surface. There's all of these services that organic matter provides in the soil. And so when you take a prairie and you till it, you're losing more than 50% of your, your organic matter, your carbon, immediately, basically, I mean, in the first year. And so our question was, how do we maintain an annual agriculture system in which we're growing annual crops that have become most of our major food crops and still maintain organic matter levels in our soil that serve all of these, all of these functions that um, organic matter has the potential to in the soil. And so the way that we do that is we, um, we emphasize the use of crops that maximize um, that, that are very good at taking carbon out of the atmosphere, which, of course, carbon is, in fact, there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. And so we grow crops like, say, corn or sorghum. Think of crops that have a lot of biomass. They're really big. And what, what's special about those crops? Well, they're very good at capturing carbon from the atmosphere. And then we compost them in a very intentional way um, in order to sort of maximize how much carbon we're holding on to in our compost. So we've sort of maximized the carbon at the level of the plant growing, and then we've maximized the carbon at the level of us turning it into organic matter through compost, and then we replace that, we put it into the soil. And so not only have we found in our systems that we're actually maintaining soil health, but we consistently see a rise in organic matter um, when we start working with the soil. So, so that, to me, is, is really one of the most exciting things about our system. And, of course, it's a system, and the system that it's a part of um, is thriving and is mature there in place. Um, you know, it really feels like a very settled garden, or really, um, like a lot of the Allen Chadwood Gardens, the plants are mature, the people are mature, the systems are mature. Um, but when we have this great farm-like event this weekend and you cook food, like, effortlessly, easily, so quickly, for, you know, like 75 people, you know, boom, 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 um, I felt like the, the new energy on the ranch and you with your household and Ruthie with her household, um, I don't know, it just really felt like kind of a great rearing circus of autonomous, uh, inter interconnected, but independent um, households. I wonder if you can reflect on the role of hospitality and learning and the kind of, like, Ridgewood scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I sort of mentioned earlier that this community is not unlike others, um, not unlike other intentional communities that were started in the 60s and that it doesn't have near the membership um, 
that it did sort of back in the day. And it's and then the question becomes, well, why is that? And and of course, for every community, those those reasons are very similar in a lot of ways, and and every community sort of has their own reasons as well. And I think that one thing about Golden Rule that's really neat is sort of the creative solutions um, to dealing with what essentially is a labor issue eventually on these huge communities with a lot of infrastructure. Um, that when you go from having 100 people to 13. You know, all of a sudden you can't run your fields or your biodegradable soap factory or your fuel alcohol plant. You know, there's just not enough people. And so, as I mentioned before, that we sort of have my Ecology Action, my uh, the nonprofit that I work for, um, we have a neat relationship with the community. And I think that's a great example of a way that they've creatively moved forward um, not not necessarily being able to find new members or, or maybe not even knowing um, what they're looking for in new members, they were able to um, think of a really creative way to serve the need of, of wanting to grow food and be self-sufficient in that way and do that without membership. So they've done that with our community or with the nonprofit Ecology Action. And, um, so I, and so what's so neat is that we see that in other ways too. So like you mentioned, Ruthie, who... Um, manages the Grange Farm School with a very cool project that is um, basically a agricultural vocational program. Um, she is sort of in a similar boat. So they're not trading for their lease, but, but they do bring a lot to the community here, and they're using beautiful agricultural land that would be otherwise unused because there's not the labor to um, to utilize that resource. And so there's this young energy um, of, of organizations that are coming together in this beautiful place and the community being wo- willing to pursue those creative options. And um, it, exactly like you said, like Ruthie has her site and her program and she has interns and um, as I mentioned earlier, our method is very applicable in a subsistence context, and so we teach a lot of interns from all over the world. And so six months out of the year, and now actually it will be eight months out of the year, um, we have interns from all over the world, you know, gathering around food together and sharing culture and learning not only within themselves but also with the intentional community here and with Ruthie's program. So there's a really neat... Um, just energy, you know, and I think I think that speaks a lot to the community to, and, and really shows the power of, of coming up with creative solutions in a situation where that a lot of communities are facing. So, so that's sort of the climate here. Um, and I don't know, we're not going to rub it in everyone's face, but um, Rachel is an incredible and effortless cook and hostess, and um, <laughs> I just. You know, Having organized events in a lot of contexts, and, you know, this was a really slim team, and Ruthie and her tribe, um, you know, pulled this together, and, of course, the, Men- the Mendocino Fuel Alcohol Group, um, who are really well-organized and, you know, long-time transition town folks, and the Grange, and the Grange Farm School, and the Ridgewood Ranch, it really um, felt like, the, the, in, the interlocking or inter, uh, overlapping uh, kind of affinity groups together figuring out, like, real-time the logistics of coordinating 
um, a revival of ethanol production on the ranch and hopefully permit permitting and um, really thinking as a region out loud and together in a really open source and organic way. I wonder, um, we were talking about soil carbon and the work of Peter uh, John Wick. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the discourse that you were having kind of like between methodologies? Um, yeah, yeah, I would love to. Like I said, that's, that's my favorite subject. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, just like you're saying, Severin, I think, um, I think that event, the Farm Hack event, um, what really, um, really highlighted that energy that I was talking about, that, um, there, there's just really good, positive, and not literally young, but the feeling of it necessarily, but, but that too. And then just the literal feeling of the sort of young, positive, excited energy. And I think that came through with the entire Farm Hack event. And, and I really thoroughly enjoyed being involved in it. And I think people had a really great experience. And, and what was so neat to see was, was um, people being very invested in continuing the connection and the work that they had started at Farm Hack. So the event as a whole was very inspiring. And, um, and as for the cooking, just a, just a sort of tangent, um, I was going to say that I just had a conversation with a friend last, last night about how it's so amazing to be a part of a culture where the food producers and cooks are so appreciated. And, um, you know, it's like I, I, did, I cooked for the event because I wanted to and I loved to do it and I wanted to cook um, with our produce from the farm. But I felt so appreciated and I, and I just think, you know, that's sort of a conversation that we have like, oh, you know, like the, our, chefs, or our chefs and the cooks and farmers should be the celebrities. And um, it's really neat to be a part of a community and a culture where I feel like that is the situation. You know, I, I was like, the cook sort of in the background of that event and I felt totally celebrated. So I just was sort of impressed by that and, and think that that's a really neat culture to be around. Um, but that's a tangent. So, yeah. So one of the participants in the farm house. Wait, I'm sorry. We have to be a tangent because one of the things we learned at the Grange Future event was the, the centrality of the three goddesses and that doing anything the Grange understood that getting anything done in a populist, anti-monopoly, cooperative enterprise, kinship, moral education, Grange platform was only going to be possible through the empowerment and equality of women, and to demonstrate that understanding, that like institutional understanding that the Grange in Victorian times had, they put three women at the top of the, of the stage who represented um, plus and Pomona and and Ceres, who are the grain, the flower, and the trees. And anyway, uh, it, uh, it occurred to me that having you on the stage as a goddess and then having you as the goddess behind the steaming soup pot was really a nice, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, ceremonial and then kind of the everyday goddess. No, no, yeah, I, well, um, um, yeah, I, th I think that your observations on, on the goddesses at the core of the Grange is really, really powerful, and I think that, um, 
I guess I think, you know, I I have a, a very dear friend and um, mentor and professor of mine named Martha Rosemeyer. She teaches at the Evergreen State College. And she and and she developed a lot of my thoughts, or to, I developed a lot of my thoughts around cooking and cooking culture um, with her and, and um, shared a really neat sort of intellectual community with her. And um, one of the things, I used to cook for our field trips for like 75 or 100 people. Um, which was you know, a lot of work. And sometimes, you know, and I would like go to bed at whatever, like two in the morning and be the first one up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I had a really neat conversation with her on sort of a generational basis in which she was saying, like, I love to cook, like, I want to be in the kitchen too, but that, that if she was the only one in the kitchen, that she would feel uncomfortable because it would feel oppressive. And so she sort of made the observation that um, that something unique to, depends, I think, probably on where you grew up, but something unique to our generation of women is that because we have been given a lot of opportunities, um, and certainly there's room to grow on that front, I'm definitely not saying that we're, <laughs> we're you know, winning equal salaries or what have you, but, um, but that because we've been given so many opportunities, like my choice to spend a lot of my time in the kitchen is a choice. And so I sort of get to do that. And I think that um, what makes that really empowering is just what you were talking about, is that um, not only is that my choice, but when that choice is is a choice to be a part of something that's empowered, it's not like I'm choosing to fade into the background and be the cook. It's like I'm choosing to be the cook and the cook is celebrated. And, and obviously that could be um, any gender, but, but yeah, I think, um, I think that's sort of a neat way of thinking about the goddesses at the, at the core of the Grange is that, um, I don't know, I guess that, that they're, that, that traditionally female, the traditional feminine role can be empowered not by leaving it, but by empowering that role itself. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. And also, it's for Debbie. <laughs> Women like Debbie. Oh, yeah. Um. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, so Debbie, Debbie's involved in the fuel alcohol group. She was one of the women at the farm hack and, I, and really, I mean, did an incredible amount of work. And actually, it's funny, she gave me this little cactus as a thank you present. And I thought, how funny that she gave me a thank you present, considering... <laughs> <laughs> she was the last one limping out of here every night and, and did some amazing work to pull that together. So, um, yeah, exactly. Women like Debbie. So, um, I guess we'll, but, but we haven't totally hit the soil carbon. I think we might go over a tiny bit because we only have one episode, so maybe Jack says that's okay. Um, and I also wanted to just talk a little bit about what you see emerging in terms of Mendocino, more broadly, Mendocino sustainable agriculture scene. Um, and, uh, you know, anything that's coming up in, in the local time that you might want to announce. So those are my agenda items. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, well, as far as the carbon front, yeah, so I was going to mention that. So John Wick, who I believe he's a co-founder, um, I may be incorrect about that. He may just be a founder. I don't know for sure, but of the Marin Carbon Project, um, which is a project out of Marin that um, he was managing cattle on grasslands and um, 
and thought that you know and was and thought that he was sequestering carbon and so he sort of asked that question and has pursued it and it has turned into this really amazing project in which they're really trying to measure um carbon sequestration in rangeland um managed like cattle grazing systems and so um i I was delighted to interact with him because, of course, though very different, that is very similar to the goals of our system in that the goal is to maximize the amount of organic matter or carbon in the soil. The difference of ours being that our emphasis is intensified food production as opposed to um, um, so sort of more extensive um, animal production, animal food production. Um, so, yeah, so we, I mean, and I think that speaks to, like I said, the cool energy of this community, but also the power of farm hacks that um, it brings a lot of minds together um, and and a lot of great things happen. And so, um, for example, not even specifically about fuel alcohol, but because of the farm hack event, I was, I was able to meet John Wick and he was able to see our gardens and, you know, observe some of the things that you were mentioning earlier. And we had an, a neat conversation about, um, uh, you know, he was, we sort of came to this explanation that his work is primarily focused on using soil as a carbon sink. And one of his hopes that in terms of like a next step is to the next question is, okay, so how do we also raise food? You know, soil can be an excellent carbon sink and then is there a way to sort of utilize rangeland as a carbon sink but then also how do we raise a significant amount of calories and food in a carbon smart way and um so he was very excited about our work which i of course was thrilled about i really respect him and, and everything that he's done so um so that was a really neat connection and i actually think that we will end up working together um in the future because he um he's interested in sending his researchers to work with us and so that we can start to measure some of our concepts which we've measured on sort of a field research level but certainly not a lab research level in which we can really start evaluating some of the ideas that we talk about like how much diversity of carbon are we really fostering in our compost and um and how are our tillage practices, which are all by hand but are done, um, affecting microbial life and organic matter in the soil and that type of thing? So that was just a really neat connection that came out of um, that came out of the farm hack event, and something that I'm really excited about. So, yeah. Well, now my main goal is um, I want to come by the ranch tomorrow morning because I want to talk through how we structure the documentation and you know again the, the core this this. So much of this revolves around working relationships and um, being able to rely on each other and having the strength of young, energetic people who are, like, trying to learn and figure it out and glean information from these amazing mechanical minds that you have um, in your community uh, and use that as a learning opportunity and, and then be able to, through open sourcing and learning and drawing up and interpreting, that work, share the benefit of that knowledge more broadly. And really, you know, as Thomas Jefferson would say, you know, when I light your candle with mine, um, I don't lose anything and, and the world is lighter. I, I think that's not what he exactly said, but he... It was <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, no, I think, I've, and your observation about about there being, a, you know, there's some great minds in this community. There's a lot of back to, lander, back to the landers that are still here, and we're some of the first minds really seriously thinking about alternative energy, and it's a gold mine. You know, it's like our Grange meetings or community gathering events are a gold mine. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, the best thing we can do is really respect that knowledge and, and be smart enough to ask questions. <laughs> So I guess the concluding the concluding phase of this, um, I'm going to give you a chance to con- to bring together your thoughts around what's next, and then just you know, and for you guys, and what announcements you want to make. I'm going to make the announcement that we Greenhorns are on Grange Future Tour, and we have got a heck of a lineup coming. Um, we're going from Grange to Grange, and um, well, our car is just packed to the gills. Um, we're going to be in Anderson Valley on December 11th. That's this Thursday um, with the wonderful Young Farmer panel. I'm giving a talk about the history of the Grange and some of the contemporary themes of Grange Revival. Um, on December 13th and 14th, we're partnering with the Farmers Guild at the Sebastopol Grange, bringing our exhibit, multimedia exhibit down there. Then on to the Live Oak Grange, sorry, Sacramento Grange, December 16th, December 20th, Live Oak Grange, January 10th, Food and Farm Conference in uh, Grass Valley, and then the Banner Grange on the 12th, January 14th, Shaping San Francisco. We're going to talk a lot about the open Internet um, and the connection between the Grange's advocacy around rural free mail delivery with and the contemporary struggles around telecom monopoly, uh, technology criticism, and, and especially this um, net neutrality and the open Internet. Um, so that will be an interesting okay. discourse of rural urban connections. Then we come down January 20th to Eco Farm, January 25th to Yolo County, um, and then March 19th we start the Southern California Greens Tour, uh, Ojai, San Luis Obispo, San Diego, San Juan Capistrano, and I just got emailed now Santa Barbara's on the list, too. So um, we hope that if you're in California and you're listening, that you will come along and learn about the Grange, hopefully join the Grange, um, and engage with us in this discourse, examining the mechanisms and methods and kind of um, temperament of the Grange institution, uh, which really has a powerful pre-digital set of ideas encoded in it that are a logical expression of a lot of the things that we're all thinking about. And as a, as, a, as a venue and as a platform, really it's the sky's the limit. Our, our imagination is the limit in terms of what can happen in these grand homes. Um, I have made my announcements. Your turn, Rachel. <laughs> well, here, here. Yeah, I had the delight of seeing the Grange Futures display and was was really impressed and, and thought it was so informative. And, and what an inspiring history, I think, of, of rural gathering and organizing, you know, in, in a really cool way. So thank you, and I encourage everybody to make out and see it if you can. It's definitely worth the visit. Um, as far as announcements from here, I... Um, I don't know. I think we have our Farmers Guild meeting is the second Tuesday of um, every month. We're skipping December. Um, and that's here at 
the Little Lake Grange in Willits. Um, if you're not in this area, there are many farmers guilds um, sort of oscillating out from from this area in, nor- in Northern California, sort of north of San Francisco. So um, if you're in that area, find a farmers guild near you. And that being said, um, visit the farmers guild website. Um, and uh, there's a lot of events going on. There's like a cookbook release party coming up in Berkeley. And um, at the beginning of the year, there's a, a guild raising party that's an annual event that's really neat and a great opportunity to to meet people that are sort of passionate about the same thing. Um, as far as ecology action goes, we have eight-month internships um, where we teach our gardening method. And, and also, as I said, there's a lot of international participants, so it's a really neat environment. So um, we also do a two-month internship if, that se- if eight months seems like a long commitment. So those are live-in internships, and they're very educationally focused. There's um, a lot of intentional academic work. And so... If you're interested in the methodology, um, visit our website, www.growbyintensive.org, and there's multiple learning opportunities, including those internships and shorter workshops, too. So we'd love to see you um, stop on by. Well, I really thank you, Rachel. When I was um, down at Pomona College in Southern California, uh, a, a nice white-haired maven stopped by. She had kind of been watching us from the road when she would come down from the mountain to come and get groceries in town. Her name's Pat Chapman. And after watching us for a while, uh, she came out to the farm and invited us to come up to the ranch and, you know, schooled us a little bit in-house for a second. And, you know, at a certain moment she said, well, it seems like you guys are serious about this, so you're going to probably need to go get some training. And she... um, she gave me the video about John Jevons, and she showed me how to get a bus ticket. So she sent me up on a Greyhound all the way from Los Angeles, <laughs> and I came to get that training. It must have been 10 years ago now when Rose, John Jevons' daughter, was like four years old. And then in the Green Trial, I saw this beautiful, goddess, red-haired woman. Um and I just it didn't even I just couldn't even I just couldn't believe it that she had grown up so much anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, I know it's amazing. It's amazing. Anyway, our lives are measured. Our lives are measured. Yeah, by well, these, uh, these goddesses. <laughs> I love it. That's wonderful. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening, and thank you for being a part of the Green Orange community. If you're not on our mailing list, please get on our mailing list, because that way you'll know about all this stuff that's going on, this constant and unfurling explosion of multidisciplinary projects. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of extreme how much more new things we're doing, and um, good thing it's interesting, because it's a lot of work. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you all. Goodbye. Thank you, Severin. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.